I mean, sometimes it's legitimate, sometimes it's nonsense. You know, you painted the wrong color wall or something, you know, whatever. And uh, he said he got a phone call from this family. He said, hey, you know, uh, we've really enjoyed our time at your church, but we're looking for a more liberal word church. And he kind of being, he's been in this game for a long time. I mean, he'd been pastoring for 40-some years. He's like, that's a new one to me. I don't know what that means. Would you mind explaining? He said, well, basically, we want to go out on Saturday and have a good time and not feel guilty about it on Sunday morning. At least they were honest, right? I mean, I can deal with honesty because then you know where you are. Most of the time we lie to ourselves. We justify, we do whatever. The thing is, is that in that moment, that was a, a clarity of where this person was. They were not looking for a church that made them feel guilty about their lives. In other words, bringing cor- conviction, correction, all the things the Scripture talk about. They were looking for a church that would embrace what they already want to do. You know, I've had several people in this town that have come to me. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to come visit your church sometime. She's like, I'm looking for it. I've had to say it multiple times. I say she, but it's been multiple people. We're just looking for a church that we feel comfortable in. I said, well, it's probably not going to be here because I don't want you to feel comfortable. I don't want you to feel outcast. But if you can comfortably sit in here and live in your sin, I'm doing something wrong. That was news to them because they were baptized when they were kids, so they're good. They're in. You see, the church today has no identity. But the church of the book of Acts had an incredible identity. There's a big distinction. The identity of the church in the book of Acts was one of such power and notoriety that it revolutionized Jerusalem. It turned it on its head, starting in Acts chapter 2. Because you're during the Feast of Pentecost... There's a bunch of Jews that are in from all over the place. They're in Jerusalem. They're at the temple. And all of a sudden, they hear this uproar, this sound coming, this this wind blowing. It would get your attention. No different than if in the other room we start hearing a bunch of noise. Most of us, it's going to pique our curiosity. We'll put this in a perspective maybe we can associate here. So somebody's got something cooking in the kitchen in the other room, and you're sitting there service, you're like, that smells good. I wonder what it is. I wonder if he's ever going to shut up so we can eat it. That's similar, right? And so they are there, and all of a sudden these people are hearing them the wonderful praises of God in their own language. And there was two groups. There was the group that could hear and understand, and there's a group that couldn't and said, those guys are drunk. And Peter, in his wisdom, stood up in that moment and said, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't what you think. This is what Joel talked about. The day was coming and is now here that Joel prophesied. And 3,000 men gave their heart to the Lord. During the Feast of Pentecost, when they're coming to make sacrifices at the temple where the presence of God no longer lies, because there's a new temple made without hands. And so Peter stands up, and in that moment, it begins to revolutionize. Because you know who doesn't like change? Religious folk. They like it their way. And so, as he continues on, suddenly you had all these people that were coming and communing together. This isn't socialism. But they were coming to live together because there was scrutiny. There was persecution because the old guard did not like what the new guys were doing. And they were creating such an uproar that it was creating problems in Jerusalem. So they were getting run out, so to speak. So they sold everything they had and they came to live together because they didn't know what else to do. And so, hey, there's strength in numbers. So we come together. And this continues to go on and on. Because not only did the 12 go out and preach and minister and perform miracles, 
but so do the followers, Philip being one of them. So much so that the church in Jerusalem got so much persecution that they were taking collection from other cities to send to them to try to help them out because they were in a bad way. And because of that, the term Christian was born. Because these were followers of the way. And what was the way? Jesus. Jesus was the way. And their Messiah had come. But the problem was is the Pharisees didn't declare him to be Messiah. So therefore, he wasn't Messiah. But these guys claimed that he did. And they were willing to lay their lives down on that fact. That there was nothing you could tell them that would convince them otherwise. Because they all watched him die. And they all watched him get buried. And then at some point, they all saw him alive again. And you can't deny what you see with your own eyes. Because they knew what dead people look like. They also know what live people look like. You see, it transformed it. And so these followers of the way got a new name. It was called these Christians. And they were causing problems. Because they did not live life like the rest of them. The religious and the non-religious. You see, Jewish people at that point in time, you had your religious sect that performed a certain way. And that was embraced in Jerusalem. But you get into Samaria and other parts, they didn't live that way. They had their own way of living. Your Herodians, your Essenes, your Samaritans. you got all these different groups. There are sects of Judaism. Followers of the way were just another sect. Fine, you go off over there. You just be quiet. The problem was is you couldn't quiet this group down. It completely transformed everything. It transformed the world. You and I are literally here today because of a movement that started in Acts chapter 2. Think about that for a moment. 2,000 years ago. We always talk about the cross, and obviously that is crucial. But what if these guys had gotten silenced? Where would we be? What if these guys had said, listen, I don't want to lay down my life for this. I don't want all this persecution. I just want to go to work and make a living for my family, and I don't want to raise a ruckus. What if that happened? Where would we be today? Likely not here, right? Now let's put that in terms that we can wrap our heads around. What if we did the same? In other words, most of us in the body of Christ today are just trying to live. And there was a phrase that came out many years ago. It was the worst thing. I shouldn't say the worst thing. It's a bad thing, okay? At all times, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Imagine if that was true of the apostles. What if Peter didn't stand up that day? What if as the Holy Spirit came upon them and there's this chaos and all this stuff's going on and they hear the sound and they hear the tongues and they don't know what's happening? Peter says, all right, listen here, guys. Here's how we're going to do this. We're not going to say anything. We're just going to let them see our lives so that we let our lives so shine that they'll understand it. You know what would have happened? Probably would have stopped with the 12. We might have got a 13. Because using words was necessary. Peter stood up and declared this is what's going on. The same man who had denied Jesus not that many days before then. You see, the identity of the church is transformed. The church today looks very much like a worldly type establishment. Because the church today is far more of a social club that has a focus of talking about the Bible and Jesus and a few other things than it does a church that is on mission. You see, it, I equate it this way, and I don't know if this is fair. I've never been in the military, especially in the, uh, like the guards or the reserves and stuff like that. But I've been told this by people, okay? Now, when you're in basic training, you are training for mission, whatever 
job you're going into, you go into this specialty class called AIT afterwards, and they train you there. But in this point, you're learning how to take orders, you're learning, you're getting in shape, you're doing all of these things. That way, if you had to go to war, you are prepared for it. And that's what the training goes on. But on the weekenders, where they go the one weekend a month, two weeks out of the year, I've heard many people say, is we kind of go around, and we sit there, and we play cards. Or we do whatever it is. There's not a lot of stuff that's happening because there's not a lot of stuff to do. And that weekender moment is essentially the church today. Because they're coming for drill, but they're not really drilling anything. They're not preparing for mission. They're not preparing for anything. And that is how we treat church. We come to church. We're not coming to be equipped, to be prepared, to be challenged, to be lifted up, to allow the Spirit of God to transform our life. We're coming because, well, that's what we do. We get up, we go, we go home, we live our lives. You see, these people's lives were completely transformed to the point that they could not live in that way any longer. We've talked about this, the identity. What's the description here? What's the definition? Well, let's read this. Okay, you ready, Ariana? Ariana. There she is. The collective aspect of the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. The set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognizable as a member of a group. The quality condition of being the same as something else. You see, all of these in Acts 2 meant something. Today you can identify as anything you want. It can be a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist. doesn't matter. It's all the same. Just call God by different names. You can be a boy. You can be a girl. You can be a toad if you want. Why not? You can be black, white, brown, yellow. It doesn't make any difference. Because if there are no absolutes, and therefore it is circular, and you can just be anything that you want. You know what I want to be? Thin. I identify as thin. So stop looking at me that way. And you guys bring me all the cupcakes you need to because I need to put on a few pounds, right? Somebody telling jokes. I don't feel like I'm telling jokes. I mean, why not? Why not identify as a six foot four Asian woman? I'd like to identify as LeBron James for a day and just cash a check. Why not? If there are no absolute. But the problem is, is that who you are inside will exude out and will transform who you are on the outside. And these guys were completely transformed. Why? Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They were not the same. Peter clearly was not the same. A little girl questioned him at the cross. He couldn't stand up to her. And then he stands up in front of 3,000 people and just lays it out there, knowing in that moment his life is on the line. This is Passover. Not Passover, Pentecost. The other P one. Pentecost. You don't fool around. He's standing up and saying something has happened. So last week we read the seven letters of seven churches, and we looked at these transformed. Now here's the map of that. It starts at Ephesus and it works its way around. This, there was a trade route that went, or this is in modern day Turkey. It was known as Asia Minor back then. And what we notice is that these were the last words that Jesus gave specifically to his churches. Given through John to these guys, these letters would most definitely work their way around. Yes, there was one to Ephesus, but the whole thing went around. They all read it. And what did we notice? Is that these churches, within 50 to 60 years of the time of the apostles, where they were really rampant, John being the last living one, had already lost their first love, had already succumbed to the pressures of this world, had already given in and became more and more like the world than they were like the church of Jesus Christ. The gathering together, 
these guys, Jesus, brought correction to. Many of which did not last much longer than that. We saw in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables but you be watchful in all things endure affliction and do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry you see we see this and we read this and we're like hey guess what that's finally come true because it is true that we don't endure sound doctrine and we have a set of beliefs that we already have and now we're going to go find somebody who will encourage us and embrace that and say yes that's exactly how god made you We've taken God's word and we transformed it. We've taken an image of the God and we're like, eh, let's make it a little bit more like me. But the reality is, is that was going on then too. Nothing changed. There's nothing new. That was written to Timothy, who was the pastor in Ephesus. A 50,000 member church. Pretty good size. No PA system. No air conditioning, can you imagine? Sacrificing. You see, yes, we're here today, but yes, they've been there all along. Because we don't want to be transformed by God. We want the convenience of God that we know we're born again, and then I can live my life how I want to a degree. We'll maybe cross a few lines here or there, but we don't do the big ones. And the closer we get to the big ones, the more we begin looking down our nose at those over there. If there are no standards, then why not? If there are no absolutes, then it's whatever you say goes. But if there are, if God created everything, His Word encapsulates all of His creation, all of His declarations, everything that He wants. Therefore, He created heaven and earth, and He's the boss, and He gets to make the rules, and we get to live by them. And we don't have to apologize for it. You know why? We didn't write it. We didn't make it. If you made a rule in your house for your children. He said, there will be no cookies in this house. It's your rule. You made it. You may have to apologize for it. Because your kids may hate you. And they may have to go into therapy because of it or something. I don't know. But those are your rules. But these, these are God's. And I don't apologize for God for the commandments that he gave no more than I apologize for God for creating gravity or creating the rotation of the earth, creating the sunrise and the sun. I don't apologize for any of that. I don't apologize for rain or lack thereof. This is God. That's his deal. You go deal with him about it. But here we are. You see, from the very beginning, there was a distinction about the believers of Jesus is that they were separated from the rest of the world. They didn't look the same. They didn't sound the same. They probably didn't even smell the same. I don't know. But that wasn't a New Testament thing. It was actually the followers of God always looked different. They always sounded different. They always behaved differently. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, for those of you following at home, that is Abraham. He says, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land I will show you, because I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You should be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What was the first thing he told him? Get out of your country. Now, this is a physical moment that he says you need to physically extract yourself from where you are. 
And when we start back up on Wednesday nights, I will explain exactly what was going on and why. But he could not do what he needed to do where Abraham was. He needed him to go somewhere else. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Aren't you glad he was obedient? You see, let me ask you this. If you knew the outcome of your decision to follow Christ in a biblical way, if you knew the result in somebody else's life, how much more likely are you to do it? You see, we're seeing the beginning from the end. to see the lives of these people, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of that. We see every decision that was made and the net result thereof. And so we look at them like, oh, you idiot, why would you do that? You know what? If we knew that about our lives, you know what we'd say? Oh, you idiot, why did you do that? But we don't. But every day, every decision matters. And so here we are, Abraham being obedient to God, leaves his country. He goes and he's obedient and thank God for it because here we are today. But that wasn't just it. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, it says, When the Most High divided the inheritance of the nation, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So he's separating the boundaries of all the people, and he takes Abraham and says, You're a new nation. You are my chosen people. You'll be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy means set apart. There's something unique about you. And 1 Kings chapter 8 Verse 53 says, you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance. As you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought the fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Separated, again, Israel, different. Deuteronomy 14.1, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourself nor shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They were unique. They were separated. They were distinct. You could walk in and you could see the Jewish people were different. If you attacked them on the Sabbath, they would not respond because it was a day of rest. They relied upon God. And that was their calling all throughout the Old Testament. That is our calling all throughout the New Testament. And when they took kings for themselves... They began to have problems. They had problems before that. But let's go here. I want to show you guys something today. Try to keep up. First Samuel chapter 8. i got a lot I want to go through. So if you can't believe this, I'm going to try to talk a little fast. In First Samuel chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1. But understand, Israel was to be separated from all the other nations. That means different. Some of you can relate more to that than others. Okay? First Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now, understand what a judge is. What's a judge? A judge was the go-between where people would come to them, and they would declare, yes, you're good, yes, you're not good, whatever's going on, they were the judges on the earth. The whole book of Judges was that. Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways, now make us a king to judge us like all the nation. But the, this thing displeased Samuel, which they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should no longer reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of, a, of the king who will reign over them. 
So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifty. Uh, will set some to plow the ground and reap his harvest. And some will make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, the finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So here's a pretty good warning. Does it sound good to anybody else? Would anybody in here sign up for that? I hope not, but... They did. Nevertheless, verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, No, what we will have a king over us, that we may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice, make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go to, Every man go to his city. Now what is going on? He said, What did they want? They wanted a king to do two things. Judge them and go out before them and fight their battles right? That was the role of the king. A king, would there was this term, the going out and the coming in. You see Moses use it. It was the going out, prepare for war, prepare for conquest, prepare for whatever, and the coming in. You would come in and you'd be refreshed, you'd be equipped, you'd be prepared, take a few days off, and all of it with the understanding that you're going back out. And the king was supposed to go out before them. You fast forward to the time of David, and David gets in trouble with uh, Bathsheba, do you really, if you read that very carefully, you'll notice that it says, in the time at which the kings would go out before their people. Had he been obedient to what they were supposed to do as kings, then the whole Bathsheba event never takes place. But he was disobeying. Imagine if you knew ahead of time that the decisions you make, the day he chose to stay home, instead of doing what he was supposed to be doing, we see the result. So, kings judged the people. Kings led into battle. What does that matter? Who was fulfilling that role prior to this? It was God. God was their judge. God was their king. Look at this, Exodus chapter 14. What does uh, God do for them? In verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see no more, again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Okay. What's going on? The Lord did the fighting. What do they do? Chill out. Don't stress. He's got this. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse uh, 29. Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for, the, for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. So what did God do? He went before them and he fought for them. So Moses is giving them comfort here. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and, and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be, when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Are you guys picking up on the trend here? 
Imagine that you're getting ready to get into a street fight. And some big dude's coming at you, but you know you got three of the world's strongest men standing behind you. You're like, I got this. No big deal. Here it was. That is what he's encouraging. Listen, the Lord your God is with you. He'll go before you. He will fight against your enemies to save you. What did they have to do? Be obedient. Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country, and the south and the lowland and the wilderness and slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord had com- God of Israel had commanded. Joshua conquered them from Kadesh, Marnia, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Did Joshua do it? No, Joshua was obedient to go. He was, he was the one that wanted to go into the promised land from the very beginning. He was obedient to go, but God fought for Israel. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 19, they're building the wall. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers of the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Again, you see the trend? What did Israel have to do? Simply be obedient. Show up. God was going to do the fighting. So in other words, you had to step out in faith. If you're going into battle and God said, I'm going to fight for you, you kind of have to believe it. You see in the time of Gideon where he said, you got too many people, let's get rid of some. And they narrow, who wants to go, who's afraid? You can go home and half of them leave. I don't remember the numbers. And they got down to basically whoever's on their knees drinking water. If they drink like a dog, send them home. But if they keep their eyes up and they're pulling the water from their hands, those are the guys you want. It's down to like 300 people. And they took over and won. And he said, the reason I did that is so you know who gave you this victory. But you couldn't do this on your own. You see, there's a belief out there that Israel was disobedient in requesting a king. This has been taught. I've taught this. I was taught this. I taught what I was taught. But sometimes it's not right. And it's one thing if you're sitting at home and you believe this because you were taught. It's another thing if you're teaching what you were taught and it's wrong. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen. What I was taught, that I taught, was not right. So let me correct it. The thing is, is that we've got to understand is that the belief that Israel was sinning and that they wanted a king is not correct. Because God had laid out prophecy and direction of when Israel would have a king. And it never made a lot of sense to me, and maybe not you either, that if God had said you're not to have a king, I'm your king, he sure worked through a lot of kings to get his will to be done. Made a promise to David who was a king. But maybe God just, you know, well, well, we'll make it work. So let's look at this from the beginning. Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He's talking to Abraham. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Okay? So from Abraham will come kings. Now, could you argue, like, well, that could be kings of any nation. Yeah, you could argue that because a lot of people came from Abraham. But Genesis chapter 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you should not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and I also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. King of people shall be from her. So we see this again. Genesis chapter 35, verse 10. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, and your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. This is where the nation gets their name. He called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Now we're getting it narrowed down. He's to, in Genesis, we're not to 1 Samuel yet. 
In Genesis, he's saying that kings will come from your body. Genesis chapter 49, verse 8, this is the prophecy often spoken of. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter is a reference to the kingship. It will not leave Judah until Shiloh, a reference to Messiah, comes. So it was spoken by God, and there are several of these guys. I'm, I'm just keeping this short. They're spoken by God that kings would come from Israel. But that's one thing. These are prophetic in a sense, that this is going to take place. But he directly told Israel that he would give them a king and how the king should act when he gets there. Deuteronomy chapter 17. What is Deuteronomy? Moses' last hurrah. He's telling the people, here's what's going to happen. When you go into the land, don't do this, do this, all of this stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 14. When you come to the land, what's the land? The promised land. Which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Does that sound familiar? Okay, so Moses is telling him, when you get there and you say this, verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, uh, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now stop for a moment. So he's saying, when you get there, and you request a king, here's what they should do. It must come as a brethren from the nation of Israel. It's not a foreign king. This king must come. And he must not amass wealth, these multiplying of horses, or returning to Egypt to multiply horses. Okay? Two things there. The second part is he should not multiply wives for himself. In other words, one man, one woman, that's it. Why should he not do that? His heart will turn away. And he will greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So do we see what's going on here? It's all these things that he is saying, don't do, and here's why. Verse 18. Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So what do we see? Don't multiply horses. Don't go to Egypt to multiply horses. Don't take on multiple wives because they will turn your heart from the Lord, and then you will amass gold and silver for yourself. And the last thing that I want the king to do is he will take a copy of this book of the law, and he will write it out himself. And he will hand it to the priest, and he will read it all the days of his life. Why? So that he will not forsake God's statutes. If you write it out, you probably have read it. It's reminding him of where this comes from. This is the stipulation. So did God have a plan for a king to be in Egypt, or in Egypt, in Israel? Absolutely. So much so that Moses gave the parameters of it. Now, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And let's read this a little more carefully. 
It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his way. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. What was going on there? There's a lot that was going on there. We're not going to go into the detail, but understand this. They were essentially selling indulgences. You come in, you could pay them a certain amount of money, they would forgive your sins, all of that. There was a whole bunch of other stuff going on. It's not good. They weren't Samuel. Samuel should have dealt with this, but he didn't. Verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and Adam and said, Look, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us, and here's the key, like all the nations. This is where they screwed up. What were they trying to be like? All the other nations. What did God tell them to be? Separated. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people. And all that they say to you, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So who was reigning over them? God was. Who did they reject? They rejected God. Because they wanted to be like all the other nations. Verse 8, According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, which, which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord, the people who asked him for a king, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousand, captains over his fifty. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your ventures and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. You will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So here's the warning. All of this stuff is going to happen if you take the king. Remember, Samuel's a prophet. He is telling them what's going to happen. So it's one of those moments that if you knew the outcome of the decision that you make ahead of time, how would that impact the way you acted, the way you behaved? It would make a big difference, right? Samuel just told them this, right? You have probably seen this. You have children. You said, don't do that because this is what happens. And what do they do? That. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Ask me how I know. Right? And what do they do? can't be that hot. I want to know. Because they're idiots. We see it all the time. We counsel people. like, listen, I see these trends. These are the way things are going. This is going to be the outcome. If something doesn't change here, nah, I'll be different. It won't work that way for me. You know what happens? It worked that way for them. It always works that way. They can't help it. Here it is. Samuel's laying them out there. None of this sounds good. They have freedom. They're obedient only to God. They don't have anybody taking their kids and, and taking their land and taking a tenth of their spoils. They don't have any of that right now. But you're signing up for this. Are you sure this is what you want? Because this is the net result of the decision that you make today. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, No, 
we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Their desire to be like every other nation is what cost them in this moment. You see, they did not want a king for a godly reason. They wanted a king to be like everybody else. This should sound like the church today. We don't want to be separated because that creates conflict. We don't like conflict, so we will compromise. Samuel heard all the words of the people and repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go to your city. So Samuel lets them have it. He gives them what they want. The Lord allowed that to be. They rejected God to be just like every other nation. And we know the outcome. We know where this is going. Saul was a terrible king. David was a better king. And later comes Solomon. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whom's hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. You see, he was just being noble. He was serving the Lord. He wasn't looking for something from somebody. His eyes weren't blinded because they were giving him a bunch of money. I'll look past that. None of that was going on. And they admit it. You've not cheated us. You haven't oppressed us. You haven't taken anything. Verse 5, then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. So they are agreeing that he's done nothing of such. Verse 6, Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous act of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asherah. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent to Rubabel, Baden, Jephthah, Samuel, and delivered you out of the hands of the enemy on every side, and you dwelt in safety. Now, who are these people? These were the judges, the book of Judges. That's what that's talking about. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Why did they want the king? It's because this guy, Nahash, had come against them, and they were scared. And they wanted a king to tell them what to do. Should they have been scared? No, because the Lord always fought their battle. He brought them out of Egypt. They continued to ignore what he had done, and they always went back to the worldly ways that they knew. Verse 13, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continually follow the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, 
but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. So now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. It's today not the wheat harvest. I will call the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for a king for yourself. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your service to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They did it out of fear because they wanted to be just like everybody else. How do we respond? Do we respond in faith because of what God has said? Or do we respond fleshly out of fear of an unknown? We don't know what's going to happen. We respond in a way that's comfortable. You see, they were to be separated, completely different. They were not to be anything like the other nations, completely separated. And the people of God in the New Testament, born-again believers, are supposed to be the exact same way. But truth be told, you can't hardly tell the difference between one to another. We talk like them, we act like them, we behave like them, we do things just like them. We have muddied the truth of Scripture so much so that we can't even distinguish good from evil anymore. We have labeled evil good and good evil. I've read that somewhere. I don't remember where. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Adulterers and adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. An enemy of God. God's church in America today is doing everything it can to be friends with the world. And what does that mean? We just became an enemy of God. God's supposed body is fighting against Him. we got a problem. And I don't want that to be us. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. When I take on the name of Jesus, calling myself a born-again believer, there are stipulations tied to that. There's behaviors tied to that. I will not respond in the same way. I'm not just talking morally. I am talking in every aspect that I will boldly stand on a hill and die for the conviction of what Scripture has said, knowing that it is true. What are we willing to do? What was the result for the nation of Israel to be just like the other nations? They had good kings, they had bad kings. They had way more bad kings. But look at Solomon. Solomon's known as what? The wisest man to have ever lived. And his opportunity, in God, he asked God, God says, anything you desire, I'll give it to you, son. Give me wisdom. And people were profound by it. So in fact, he would judge the people. They would come to him. And he would say, okay, do this. Remember the whole thing with the baby? Whose baby is it? What's he say? Cut that baby in half. Knowing that the true mother would never allow that to happen. That's wisdom. And he was smart, or at least he perceived to be smart. He made some pretty dumb decisions. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. I want to read this slowly because I want you to catch this. Verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh. Where did Pharaoh come from? Egypt. What was the king not supposed to do? Take foreign wives, or more than one for that matter. Women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor with you, they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Isn't that interesting? That he didn't say, go ahead and marry them and then lead them to be Israelites. He said, stay away from them because they will turn your hearts from God. 
Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. That's not wisdom. That's lunacy. His wives turned away his heart. Is that what Moses had said was going to happen? Absolutely. For it was so when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Solomon built a high place for Shemosh and the abomination of Moab on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burn incense and sacrifice to his God. So in other words, he compromised, yes, we'll build the high places of the temple, a place to sacrifice. We'll build for this one, we'll build for that one, so on and so forth. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after the other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and to give to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David for, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. You see, Solomon amassed for himself wives. And if you read in other places, he talks about the incredible wealth that he had and how he had horses thousands of horses and chariots, some of which came from Egypt. All the things that Moses had forewarned about. So we know a couple of things. Number one, we know that Israel was to have a king, but that king was in God's timing. But the second part here is, is we see that the nation of Israel no longer was distinguished from the rest of the nation. They were worshiping all these other gods, sacrificing all these other gods, doing everything that they were supposed to not do. And even for Solomon, you think he was probably torn at the heart in this. I'm going to show you this picture. You may not know what this is, but this is known as the Hill of Offense. This is in Jerusalem. From the Mount of Olives, you can see this. I believe it's to the east, but don't quote me on that. Geography was not my strong suit. I have to use my GPS to get to parts of Rockport, so bear with me. Don't ask me to point to north either. But I believe this is east of uh, the Mount of Olives, and this was known as the Hill of Offense because this was the place where Solomon built houses for his wives to live in. It was an offense to God. He didn't name it this. But every day from, this, from his palace where he would look out, he would see that. And in his heart of hearts, he would see this, and it was a reminder of he was not being obedient to God. You see, this is why the church has to be different. We aren't a social club. Imagine, Acts chapter 5, when they're all gathering together and they're filling out application forms and paying membership dues, and they come together and they talk and they go about their life. That is not what the church was. The church was the arm of Jesus Christ. It was His breath, His words, His action, His feet. It was everything that He was. These people were on mission. Do you not think that they had jobs to go to? Of course, they had to support their family. They had things that they would do. But... They would not do things in a way that dishonored God because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. And we do that every day now. 
You see, the church, like Israel, is to be separated. We're to be distinct. We should look different, sound different, respond differently. We should stand out in a dark place, and unfortunately, we blend in way too well. It's time for the church to wake up and to be different. We talk about all these old revivals and things like that. The marker of a revival is repentance. And we have an unrepentant nation because we have an unrepentant church. A church that doesn't really want what God wants. We want what we want, and we want to stick God's name on it. It is time for the church to wake up. And while we can't affect other churches around us, we can start right here at home. That's why we respond differently. When somebody calls and says they have cancer, we don't respond like, oh my goodness, how bad is it? We respond like, when can I come pray for you? I just yesterday had a, a guy that I grew up with. He was my best friend growing up, 40 years old, died of cancer. And uh, he'd had it a while back and he got over it. And uh, this guy spent every day at my house going to high school. And uh, one day he got invited to a party and he smoked pot and he was never the same after that. You know, I'm not making any political statements about that, but it's just reality. He was a good student, then he became obsessed with it. He never worked anywhere of any sorts. I mean, he was just one bender to the next. Forty years old, he has cancer. Found out it was terminal. Tried reaching out to him. I sent him a message on Facebook. It's the only way I knew how to contact him. I haven't seen him in years. And uh, I said, and he was one that did not, he'd come to church with me, but he never really bought in. He never really got into God. In fact, he was antagonistic against God for a while. Then he kind of got humbled a little bit. Uh, we'd had conversations that way. And, and anyway, long story short, I reached out to him and I said, hey, man, I just heard the news. What's going on? Um, I'd love to get together. He's like, man, that'd be great. He's like, I just need you to pray for me. I said, good. I'd love to come over and pray in person. I'm not going to give you these shallow prayers. And he's like, that's okay. I don't really want to see anybody right now. About two months ago. Here he is then. What can I do? But that's the world we live in. It's like we have to be people that when we hear something, we go. We just do. Forty years old. No wife, no kids, no nothing. Fortunately, in this case. But the church needs to be different. We need to respond in faith, not in fear. And we've seen over the last 18 months, two years, that we've seen a fearful church that responds in every way that is scared. Imagine what would happen where we would be today if Peter hadn't boldly stood up and if those people hadn't boldly stood for what they believed. And instead of pinching the incense going into Smyrna, that they had stood up and said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Where would the church be today? It'd be completely different. We may not be here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together. Lord, I think that you are quickening our hearts. And those things that we need to cut out, that we will cut out. That you are convicting our hearts right now of those things of which need not be there. Lord, that we can honor you and serve you every day of our lives. That everything we have belongs to you. No worldly blessing from you is controlling us. Lord, we give everything up tomorrow. And give it to you, Lord, in a way that you could do something great with it, Lord. It doesn't matter what it is. That our hearts belong to you, and therefore our time belongs to you, and therefore our things belong to you, and therefore every part of what we have and who we are belongs to you. Lord, I thank you that you are giving us opportunities to be used by you, and that we will boldly stand up in times of chaos and show the peace that passes all understanding, that you're glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Have a great week, guys. See you Sunday.